the high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. This is your news for Friday, November 4th. The family of Gabby Petito is suing the Moab Police Department for $50 million, claiming their negligence led to Petito's death. Moab City officers stopped Petito and her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, after a domestic violence complaint. They separated the couple for the night, determining that Petito was the assaulter. She was found murdered in Wyoming weeks later, while Laundrie fled from authorities and was found dead by suicide in Florida. The lawsuit claims that Moab police officer Eric Pratt was fundamentally biased in his approach to the investigation and ignored evidence that Gabby was the victim. An independent investigation found that Moab police made mistakes during their interaction with the couple, for example, not connecting Petito with a mental health professional, but that report notes it's impossible to know if Petito would still be alive today if the police handled the case differently. In a statement, Moab City says it is clear that Moab City Police Department officers are not responsible for Petito's eventual murder, and they will ardently defend against the lawsuit. Increased demand for materials used in electric vehicles, plus the war in Ukraine possibly disrupting uranium supplies, means southeastern Utah could be seeing more mining in the near future. I spoke with Jonathan Thompson of High Country News about the potential mining boom in our region. You kind of delved into a year's worth of new mining claims in western Colorado and southeastern Utah. What'd you what'd you find? Well, I found that, that there have been quite a few new mining claims in that area. I, I looked focused on just San Juan County, uh, Grand County um, in Utah, and then also uh, San Miguel and Montrose counties in Colorado. By and far, the, the largest kind of bulk claims were in, in Utah, in those two counties in Utah, um, mostly in San Juan County, but quite a few in Grand County as well. And uh, I think I counted more than 1,200 claims in those two, just those two counties, just Grand and San Juan County, over the last year. So that's quite a bit. And uh, some of them were in places that had already been kind of have been mined and disturbed. Uh, some of them were on a, a big group was on Hearts Point, which was is a peninsula of kind of of unprotected land that goes right into. Um, bear's ears uh, that, that was originally meant to be included, or, or the intertribal coalition asked for it to be included in Bear's Ears National Monument, but the Obama administration cut it out, um, probably as a concession to locals and, and to industry, and uh, now we're seeing what that means. There's a lot of new mining claims on it. When you're looking at these mining claims, can you tell what minerals or, or metals uh, they're after? No, not just from looking at the claims. That's not one of the things that they need to uh, put in there. When you when you uh, get a mining claim, I, I was going to say apply for a mining claim, but you don't even apply for a mining claim. You stake your claim. Um, and as long as nobody else has staked it and it's public land and it hasn't been withdrawn from claims, like as a national monument or something, then basically you just file for it and you pay your maintenance fee at, I think $165, and uh, then it's yours. Um, and there's no public process, nothing like that. And you don't you you don't have to say what you're going to mine or or 
or what your intent is at all. Um, so for me, what I did is went through these claims and focused on what I call bulk claims, which is where one entity makes up to 500 claims um, at 20 acres each. And uh, I just looked at those companies and sort of tried to research them and try to see what they do. So some of them are pretty obvious. They might be called you know, American Uranium or American Lithium. Uh, some are less obvious and can take a little bit more work um, to see what's what their, their main focus is. And so you can kind of guess that way. Um, and in, in San Juan and Grand County, there's, it's a mix of uranium and lithium from what I can tell. What's your idea behind companies going after lithium in this region? What is stoking that demand? Uh, electric vehicles, for sure, because lithium uh, right now is a, the main component of lithium-ion batteries, which is what uh, electric vehicles almost exclusively use. There are some electric vehicles without that have a different kind of, of battery that uses a different material. But for now, most of them are lithium-ion. Most of the batteries in your laptop, your camera, um, your iPhone, whatever, are lithium-ion. And so that's uh, – with, with demand of all those things going up, but especially electric vehicles, the demand for lithium is going to go up as well. So, um, you know, whether whether all these things will pan out at any point is, is anybody's guess right now. Um a lot of it's speculative. It's really easy to speculate when you, given the, the current rules, it's easy to, to make a claim or to stake a claim and then or stake a whole bunch of claims and then go to investors and say, hey, look, I got all these claims and then try to gin up some investment, even if you don't intend to ever mine it. Um, so it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen exactly, but uh, Right now, there is definitely a lithium rush on in the in the west of the United States. So it's too early to tell if these will actually pan out and there'll be another boom similar to maybe like a uranium boom uh, that occurred here in the in the 50s. Yeah, it's really hard to to um, to know at this point whether things are going to pan out. And one thing about the uranium boom that's interesting in like Moab is that you know, Charlie Steen came in and he, he discovered, uh, he staked his Mivita claim and, and discovered pay dirt there and made millions. And that drew a whole bunch of people to Moab in this rush to stake their own claims into prospect. But 95% of them didn't find anything or, or didn't find anything that was worth something, um, or they just didn't have the wherewithal to, to start a mine. So that there was this sort of speculative prospecting boom that lasted for in the fifties for maybe three or four years. And then it was done. And then after that, it was, uh, you know, there was this big bust and then kind of the, the, the established mining companies stuck around, um, including the Atlas uranium mill. They're on the banks of the Colorado and, and a few more mines. So there was, still an economy from uranium mining for sure, but that frenzied kind of rush didn't last very long. And so you might see something like that now too. You know, you might see this rush for mining claims and and people throwing money at it and people showing up and, and 
and saying they're going to do something, but it doesn't necessarily mean it'll pan out. So we'll see. It's really too early to know, either with lithium or uranium, because really that the, there are a few big lithium projects that are, that are moving forward in the United States, mostly in Nevada and Arizona. And those ones are moving pretty slowly because there's a lot of opposition. So uh, until those ones get go up and going, I, I don't know if we can really expect to see a whole lot um, all over the place. But we are going to see a lot of speculation for sure. Is there anything else you want to, to talk about in, in your reporting? You know, I think one thing I would add is that when, when you're looking at mining new mining claims, that's only a, a small part of the picture because especially in these historic mining areas. A lot of the old mining claims that were made back during the 1950s boom, those were patented, which means that the person who, the claimant, gained title of it and they became private property. And so those things, it's a lot easier even on that private land to go ahead and start mining or prospecting or doing some sort of work. And so that, and none of that shows up in the BLM records. So the the number of mining claims staked, that 1,200 number, is just one, one slice of the pie, kind of. Um, but it's an indicator of what may be going on everywhere else as well, so. was Jonathan Thompson with High Country News. You can find some of his reporting on mining in the region in the show notes. The Grand County Commission was in session this week, so... What happened at the what meeting? Happened at the meeting? At the meeting? What happened at the meeting? Whatever happened, what at, the happened at the meeting? What uh, exactly happened at the meeting? Maggie McGuire, editor of the Moab Sun News, answers. At this week's Grand County Commission meeting, commissioners heard a presentation on possible changes to a new law mandating an educational component for OHV users, which would begin in 2023. However, changes reportedly planned for the 2023 legislative session would eliminate the education requirement for operators of street-legal OHVs. At the meeting, commissioners discussed reaching out to the bill's sponsors to express concerns. A vote on the alternative dwelling overlay ordinance which would allow unconventional dwellings such as RVs, tiny homes, and vans to be used as long-term residences, was postponed, and the commissioners discussed the 2023 budget and how to cut over $1 million in requested expenditures from the county's general fund. And that's what happened at the meeting. This exercise in civics is a collaboration between KZMU News and the Moab Sun News. Find recaps of local government meetings at moabsunnews.com. You can also watch these meetings on YouTube. Find Grand County, Utah there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The uranium tailings pile north of town is getting smaller every year. That means local leaders are envisioning a new future for the banks of the Colorado River. Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent spoke with Molly Marcello about their story. There was this former uranium mill called the Atlas Mill north of Moab. And after that mill shut down in the 1980s, they left this large pile of dirt contaminated with uh, traces of uranium and other things as well. And uh, that contaminated pile started to be moved just about 13 years ago. And mm -hmm. it's really exciting. Over 80% of that pile has now been moved to a more secure spot about 30 miles north. 80% of the pile, that means that there is a finish line ahead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, a few years ago, kind of separately, uh, Moab City and Grand County thought, hey, 
we don't own this land right now. We want to own this land in the future when it's clean. Let's come up with a community vision of what could go there if we do, you know, get the land. And as a lobbying tool to, you know, let folks at the federal level know, like, hey, we have plans for this land. Mm. We want it. This is what we're going to do with it. Mm -hmm. So those visioning efforts have occurred twice already in 2013 and 2018. They're supposed to occur every five years. So we're just coming up on the kickoff of the 2023 visioning session. So it's kind of the same process as the previous two, but there's more urgency and excitement I would say around this one, given that the finish line is now on the horizon. I remember reading maybe the first one and there were, you know, plans for or potential ideas for like a skating rink or like a mini golf. And I have a feeling it's going to be different this time around. Yeah. Interestingly, the 2018 plan, yeah, had the ice rink. They had like they had a mining memorial, which is super cool and also and a a big transit center. Mm, Yeah. So the site itself is about 480 acres, but only about 114 of those. Those are are actually kind of developable because the rest is floodplain, essentially. And notably, I know affordable housing is a big conversation in the community. I've heard people mention off the bat, like, we should put affordable housing there. Mm. Unfortunately, there is going to be lingering contamination of water and and earth at the site, even after the tailings piles moved. Mm. So I have learned that permanent housing or even overnight accommodations are not going to be permitted there for the foreseeable future. So any ideas you have that are not those things, um, there's going to be an open house on November 16th. Um, in the city council chambers on Center Street. Everybody should definitely go to that. There you can review the 2018 plan and, and fill out a survey providing your your own ideas and preferences. And even if you can't go to the open house, that survey is available mm-hmm. online, grandcountyconnects.com. You can fill it out until January 31st. Okay, so this is another chance to get involved in this conversation of what happens to the tailings pile if and when um, Green County assumes ownership of it once the DOE is finished there. Um, I'm sure you thought about the timeline of all of this. You know, what what are people saying now? Totally. It seems like the tailings pile is going to be completely moved within four years, we think. And this is not from the Department of Energy. This is from other people's speculation. So, you know, Moab Mayor Joe Atlantianese and, and just also looking at um, how long it's taken them so far to move 80% of the tailings. Looks like the next couple years. Importantly, there will be, you know, more remediation that happens after that. Mm, so sure. other things, I don't know the details, but other things are going to have to be cleaned up um, even after that. But the tailings pile will be a really big deal when it's gone. And actually, um, uh, Langeonese and a few other officials from Moab City and Grand County are going to be going to Washington, D.C. next year to resume lobbying efforts at the federal level to get the DOE to transfer the land to a local entity. Moving on, there's a lot of information in this week's Times Independent. Um, Where do you want to take us next? Quick, we have a story about an OHV test that I'd like to provide some context for. So um, it sounds like you made some clarifications about it. Um, Tell us about it. Yes, yes. So the story, upon first glance, it might not make much sense unless you were in the Grand County Commission Chambers Tuesday afternoon for a pre-commission meeting workshop. Okay, were you there? (laughs) Um, So you you need to listen in. Absolutely. What happened? It was a very informative workshop in a lot of ways, but there there were some misleading statements and misinformation coming out of it. So the story is trying to kind of rectify that. Okay. Um, So the workshop was about HB 180, which is a bill that passed the Utah legislature this past year. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. It requires a once in a lifetime educational course for those who drive off-highway vehicles in the state, whether they're residents or non-residents. Mm-hmm. It'll take effect next year, theoretically okay. January 1st. Um, and my headline is that the test is still going to apply to those driving street-legal vehicles because it, it was said during the session that 
the law had been changed afterwards to only apply to non-street legal, mm. um, even though the course includes a lot of information about driving in residential areas and necessarily those are mm. street legal vehicles. Mm-hmm. So I, I did follow up with Chase Peely, who is the OHV program manager for the Utah Division of Outdoor Recreation, and he confirmed that there are, are no major changes to the law. It okay. will still apply to those driving street legal vehicles. Okay, so this is an article that you wrote to basically sort of clarify some of the misinformation or incorrect statements in um, this week's meeting and also sort of give people a refresher on what HB 180 will do. Absolutely. It is a very exciting thing. I mean, I've mentioned this in previous coverage, but Grand County um, staff actually helped draft a lot of the test and the questions and the informational content. There's going to be a video that Sand Flats had produced that's going to be part of the educational uh, mm-hmm. component. So it is really exciting. It has local input. I think it has broad support among, mm-hmm. you know, those who are concerned about noise pollution from right. OHV businesses as well. Um, right. It is really cool. And you may have mentioned this, so apologies, but this takes effect next year? Correct. Okay. So the aim is January 1st. January 1. And moving on to another piece in the Times Independent, let's talk about election security. It looks like Grand County Clerk Auditor Gabe Waitek, um sort of addressed that at this week's county commission meeting. Yes, he gave a quick um, presentation about the election security measures that Grand County takes in advance of the upcoming November 8th election. So he reviewed processes around equipment and making sure equipment is safe and secure, also Mm -hmm. about ballot handling, maintaining good voter rolls, and then also the post-election auditing procedures. I found the information really interesting. I didn't know a lot about it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it sounds like they keep a really tight ship. More on election security in the Times Independent. And I know you want to take us inside the paper to do a couple of different mentions. Yeah, some very cool kind of community resources for folks. I have a pair of articles on A3 talking about uh, a program from the Moab Museum that is offering its professional grade scanner for those who want to digitize their family photos and film reels and mementos like that. And then also, if you are trying to become dark sky compliant, which we all should be trying to do that right now, you can actually get reimbursed for retrofitting your outdoor lights for that compliance uh, through a program run by Friends of Arches and Canyonlands Parks. So some really cool resources for local residents here. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Local residents have been casting a vote in Grand County ever since ballots went out mid-October. So what happens to your ballot once it's returned to the clerk's office? This week's edition of the Moab Sun News takes us inside those election procedures. Allison Hartford spoke with Molly Marcello about the process. Election day is on Tuesday, November 8th, and mail-in ballots were sent out to voters um, on October 18th. And so we wrote about what happens to your ballot after you submit it. So Rachel spoke with the county clerk slash auditor, Gabriel Wojtek, about election procedures and security. Um, And he said he sees three pillars of election security, which are voter registration, the handling of the ballots, and the integrity of the equipment. And he also said he's very confident in the county's dedication to accuracy and integrity in the election process. I know that um, there had been some concerns raised about staffing shortages at the post office affecting um, the voting process. Did Rachel dig into that a little bit? Yeah, so there has been a few staffing shortages at the post office. Um, 
wait times for the desk are a little bit longer and the office usually closes for lunch hour because of short staffing. Um, but Wojtek said this shouldn't affect voting at all. And there's no expected effect on people's ability to postmark their ballots in time. So ballots by mail have to be postmarked by November 7th. So you can submit them at the post office, but you can also submit ballots at the clerk's office through 8 p.m. on November 8th. Okay, so if you don't get your ballot in the mail by November 7th, you can definitely go down to the clerk's office and drop it off. Yes. So um, this article talks about election security, and there are a lot of processes that the clerk's office goes through during um, the actual count on November 8th, but also after the count. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so ballots are never handled with fewer than two county staff present. And the county uses this tabulating machine called the DS200, and they've been using it for several years. So this tabulator doesn't have the capacity to be connected to the internet, and it's never connected to any networks. Um, And they audit it with like a logic and accuracy test ahead of the election that uses a test deck of ballots. The county relies on this tabulating machine, it's never given them any issues, and then Around midday on election day, the staff will begin tabulating ballots. As the county staff collects ballots, um, they scan the mail-in ballots. And so each one has a barcode that's associated with a voter. And that information gets checked against the state database of registered voters. So that ensures each person gets one vote. And then for people who are voting in person, County staff will first check that individuals are registered to vote, and then verified voters will feed a blank ballot into an express vote machine and make their choices on a touchscreen. And then the ballot will be printed with those choices marked and then sealed into an envelope, which the voter has to sign. So then um, all the envelopes get verified and they get put into this tabulating machine around midday on election day. Um, And major political parties in the election, which in this case is Democratic and Republican, are invited to designate official poll watchers, um, but both parties decline to designate poll watchers in this election. So it'll just be county staff um, watching the tabulating machine. And Wojtek said he expects to be able to report results to the state on election day night. Thank you for going through all that. And people can still, you know, even if they're not registered, they can still... Um, vote by provisional ballot. Is that right? Yeah, right. So you can still register to vote in person at the county clerk's office through election day using a provisional ballot, which allows people to cast a vote even if there's something missing or unconfirmed on their voter registration. So provisional ballots aren't counted until the registration information is all completed and verified. And the deadline to cure which is the deadline to complete and verify the registration for a person um, is on November 14th. So as of Tuesday, November 1st, Wojtek said there were 5,966 active registered voters in the county. And according to census data, there are around 9,000 people who live in Grant County. So the U.S. usually has a 40% turnout rate in midterm election years. And so it looks like we're kind of on track to hit that. Um, But Wojtek did say there's always good turnout in Grand County. So he's expecting a high turnout. So moving on, um, there's more in the Moab Sun News. You were able to speak to the new sustainability director at Moab City. Um, Tell us about that. So Alexi Lamb has been the city of Moab's sustainability director since mid-September. And before moving to Moab, she earned her PhD at Utah State University, where she also worked as the sustainability coordinator. And so she really wanted to switch it up because she said she was really drawn to Moab um, because we already have a lot of 
sustainable policies that are going into place and the city is really passionate about sustainability. And so she was really excited at the idea of working on these projects and also having a community impact. So she has four initial goals, which include finalizing the city's dark sky regulations, prioritizing Moab's place in the Utah 100 Communities Project, which is a project that sets a goal to create net 100% renewable energy by 2030. She wants to enhance Moab's recycling outreach and complete the city's sustainability master plan, which is this huge project that um, neither one of the two former sustainability directors had been able to complete. Yeah, like you mentioned, neither one of them were able to complete it before they left Moab City, and it sounds like it's landed in this next director's lap. Did she have anything to say about that? Yeah, so she really wants to build on what is already in the draft. Um, So the last draft came through in 2019, and she said a lot's changed in the world since then. And she also wants to be really efficient about creating this plan. So we already have a lot of different chunks, like the city has a finalized water conservation plan. Um, and then she's also working on, the, on all these policies, like the dark sky regulations could be fit into that, um, recycling. And there are all these projects that Moab is part of that would all go into this plan. And so she's trying to figure out a way to tie them all together while also not putting um, people who live in Moab through survey fatigue. You know, we just did this giant like community visioning project. And so she said she's going to try to rely on a lot of that data um, in order to see what the community needs. But she is definitely trying to balance like what the community wants for Moab versus the ideal of our natural resources versus what's actually possible. There's a lot of considerations there. Her goal, of course, is to complete this plan. Like, do our lawmakers sort of look at this plan and then create policy or sort of reference it? Um, while they're making policy, like how does it get used? So the master plan would be used to inform the city and inform city council of what the sustainability plans are. So the last couple drafts um, kind of set out these big goals for the city that would drive what policies we create. And so this would be like much of the same. It would kind of be Instead of the city council just asking for each other's opinions and Alexi's opinions, they could turn to this this master plan in order to create their policies. Anything else to mention about what's ahead for our new sustainability director or or something that you found interesting about your interview with her? So a big part of the sustainability director job is communication. Alexi is thinking a lot about that, she told me, because... People in Moab are really passionate about sustainability, but we're also trying to balance this tourism economy with our visitors. And so this is something that Mila Dunbar-Irwin, the former sustainability director, brought up, which is that sometimes it's hard to put policies in place when people look to our hotels and they're like, well, this hotel has a pool full of water. Like, why can't I water my lawn? And so a lot of this comes down to education and trying to communicate with people in the city about what the sustainability department is doing. And so she sees that as at least a third of her job is dedicated to that. Um, And so she's really passionate about this city and she really wants to be able to inform people in the best way that she can so that they can make their own decisions. Well, thank you, Ali. Um, And there's more in the Moab Sun News. There's an upcoming event that's happening this weekend. So this weekend is the Moab Trail Marathon, which is known as one of the toughest marathons in the entire nation. 
and has also been named a bucket list marathon. Wow. Okay. So tell us why is it so challenging and why is it so um, appealing for people who want to do this type of thing? This marathon has been going on for 14 years and it's on a course um, just off Cane Creek Road. So it follows Pritchett Canyon to Hunter Canyon Rim Trail and then it dips into the Captain Ahab Single Track Trail and the Cliffhanger Deep Trail and then it finally finishes out on Jackson's Trail. And so it's huge elevation gain. Um, there are a lot of obstacles like you run through a cave and an arch and there's a rope ladder Um, and so it's supposed to be this like incredibly fun course but it also is very challenging all right so it's in its 14th year that's kind of you know a big deal it's rounding on 15 years Um, did you speak to um, the organizers yeah so I spoke to Danelle Ballinger who is the director and founder of the marathon and she said the race has become really popular despite the fact that she's hardly done any advertising Um, it usually spreads by word of mouth like People will come back and do it. She said usually about 40% of the runners are returning people um, and they'll tell their friends to come do it. And so it's really spread everywhere. And it's also grown a lot in the 14 years. So it started as an ultra marathon, which is around 31 miles. Um, But a lot of people wouldn't finish it. And she also didn't want people to go home and be like completely wrecked. Um, So she changed it to a marathon distance and added a half marathon and a 5k and a kids 1k option. Um, And so all of this is supposed to just be like really happy and fun. So this year, around 650 people are running the marathon and around 1,500 are running the half marathons. Anything else to say about the um, Moab Trail Marathon? Yeah, so Belindy herself was a former pro runner and she said trail running is much different from like a road marathon because road marathoners will usually try to split their time and keep a pace. Um, But trail running is really just about the way that your body feels and listening to what you need. And so it's a much different headspace. And she said, usually this means that the runners are having a lot of fun and they're really happy. And so it's a very exciting atmosphere to be around. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.